We've heard politicians on both sides making the argument that increasing the supply of new dwellings is a solution to housing affordability. And while this may be true in principle, making it actually come true is really quite complex. And then there's the demand side of the equation. Why do our regulators seem so reluctant to put in place measures to offset the impact of low interest rates on property prices? What's standing in the way? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report which experts can you trust to get it right the elephant in the room.com.au Today we're in for a treat, as many of our questions about the impact of supply on the property market are going to be answered, and I'm pretty certain we'll be able to dispel some popular myths around housing affordability along the way. We're joined by Peter Tulip, Chief Economist at the Centre for Independent Studies. He's previously worked in the Research Department of the Reserve Bank of Australia, and before that at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. His recent research focuses on housing and monetary policy, and we really appreciate you joining us today and for your time and expertise, Peter. Today, Veronica. Peter, um, this probably could be 10 episodes. Um, so excited <laughs> to have you on. I mean, I'm just going to hit you with a big one to start off, right? Why is housing unaffordability, I guess, such a big problem long term in Australia? That's a great question. Um Lots of people would like to have houses. The dream of home ownership is a central part of Australian culture, and that's increasingly being denied to lots and lots of young families, that housing is just getting really expensive. That's a big problem for renters, and it's a problem for young home buyers. So... There are other countries in the world, right, where there's high proportions of populations that rent. Yep. And so you just mentioned there the affordability is not just about home ownership, it's about renting as well. And so, and I, and I know I also have read some of your, your work that it appears obviously as affordability becomes a problem, as home ownership becomes a problem and diminishes or decreases in our population, then you would imagine that that means the age or the average age of home ownership or first are first purchase would go up therefore younger people are more disadvantaged we know also that COVID has actually disproportionately impacted the younger cohort as well so in terms of sort of this perfect storm happening at the moment in terms uh, for affordability or unaffordability in Australian property you know what is COVID and what is was going to happen anyway or is it has COVID just accelerated this problem so COVID The direct effects of COVID are locational. I mean, there's more demand for living out in the country in regional towns. There's very little reason to live close to the central business district at the moment. I mean, all the nightlife and the commute and the big advantages you normally get from city living are all on hold until until we open up again. And so the direct effect of the virus is to change relativities a little bit. The indirect effects are bigger, though. In particular, the Reserve Bank has cut interest rates down to zero, and that's having a huge effect on housing prices. So that I want to get to that um, because they are universe. It's, it's sort of easy to blame that, and I'm presuming it's more complex than just saying it's because of low interest rates, though. You know, is that impact sort of truly understood? For all its complexities? Uh, we've got, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are lots of things about the housing market we don't really understand, um, but the effect of interest rates on prices is fairly well understood. Um, and, it, and partly because it's so huge, it just stares you in the face when you look at the data. When interest rates go down, prices go up by a lot. It appears that the RBA wants to deny this. Why, why is that the case? No, I don't think the RBA wants to deny that. Um, the RBA is fond of saying the problem is complicated. Um, that's partly just to show off how clever they are. 
Um, but it, but it is complicated. Yeah. So there's always when you're talking about prices, you've got an interaction, demand and supply. And so yeah. we've had this huge increase in demand because of low interest rates, and that's interacting yeah. with supply, which is highly unresponsive. And so as the demand goes up, instead of building more houses, the price goes up. So there are several things going together and, and they interact. So the RBA is in a really tough position though, right? You know, it's, it's forwards guidance is that rates are going to stay low for three years, etc. And they can see that house prices, are, you know, property prices are going nuts all over Australia and it's creating lots of social problems. But then they've got to keep them low for lots of reasons as well. So, you know, how are they sort of balancing that? You know, are they really stuck and they just got to let house prices and assets grow um, and focus purely around the wage growth and inflation, etc.? So the key objectives of monetary policy are inflation and unemployment. And mm. for those objectives, you want interest rates to be as low as possible. The Reserve Bank and, the, and Canberra also want to put a lot of stimulus into the economy. And the, a lot of that is just to offset the effects of the virus, which has stopped a whole lot of spending otherwise. And so that does have an effect on house prices. Um, and that is... And, and that's less important to the Reserve Bank than the effects on unemployment and inflation. And that's why they're keeping interest rates low. And the, and the sort of exchange rate issue in here as well. I mean, we don't yeah. really want to have higher interest rates in Australia because it encourages overseas money, which pushes our dollar up, etc. I mean, how are they sort of balancing that? I mean, is that another incentive for them just to try to keep rates lower for longer? So the exchange rate channel is one of the important ways in which interest rates affect inflation and unemployment. When interest rates are low, it puts the dollar low, which raises prices a bit, the prices of imports in particular. That's good, better for your inflation outcome. And it promotes export growth and reduces imports, which is good for the unemployment picture. So mm. I wouldn't say it's a balancing item so much as it's part of the way that low interest rates achieve the central bank's objectives. So given that low interest rates, uh, it's more it's about more than just property, obviously, what tools do the regulators have at their disposal to quell demand that is going to run, obviously, in the housing market in the face of those low interest rates? Well, it isn't actually obvious that you do want to quell demand. That where you've got a situation with excessive unemployment and inflation too low, the authorities want almost every tool they can to be stimulating demand. And yep. part of the growth of um, the housing sector we've seen has been a deliberate act of policy, in particular the home builder program. The, the government wants a lot of home building and it wants people spending a lot of money on housing. So at the moment, um, with the economy doing poorly it's not uh, the strong demand for housing is one of the few positives we have going on and it's not at all clear that you do want to dampen that down at the moment uh, that said as prices go up and as debt increases we do worry a little bit about financial stability and that would be a problem if the economy were to move into a boom um, but then you're talking in several years' time and then you would be able to offset any problems with a reduction in interest rates. So is that why, that, that sort of risk, is that why sort of Josh Frydenberg's come out saying that he wants to reduce the, the multiple, was it to six times income, you know, borrowing for property or total, was it total debt, six times income, is that correct? Uh, that, there's been a lot of talk about that. The government's been fairly vague. I mean, at the moment, they're just committed to studying and investigating that. Um, but yes, uh, there are... And they haven't said exactly why they're worried about that. There are a lot of possible reasons. A lot of them are bad. So, I mean, The reasons are bad or, or yeah, well, the outcome is bad? <laughs> so the main reason people don't like high house prices is 
for the reasons we were talking about before. It's a problem of affordability. And in particular, young families can't get the deposit together for a house. If you put on lending restrictions, you're going to make that worse. You're going to make mm. it even harder for young families to be able to borrow for a home. And so in terms of the main concern I think the public has with rising house prices, that lending restrictions are counterproductive. It, mm. It's so funny you say that because it's so true, mm. right? The, you know, you pump, same as this um, labour, we're going to talk about doing negative gearing, CGT, etc. Um, making these changes after you pumped up a market, you know, and same sort of thing with first-time buyers, you know, your market's been pumped up and now you're saying, right, you can't afford it and now we're going to make it even harder for you because we're going to restrict how much you can borrow. And um, it, it's a real sort of catch-22, right? Um, do you think the government really cares? I mean, you know, Bronick always calls me a conspiracy theorist, but I mean, do, does the government <laughs> really care about rising house prices? Because when you look at their incentives and the votes, the taxes, um, stamp duty, it just goes on and on. Higher house prices are very correlated to better um, outcomes for the government. So does the government really care about the minority when the majority benefits from rising house prices? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I have no reason to um, doubt the politicians when they say they're worried about affordability. But they do, but finding the right policy is genuinely difficult. There are real trade-offs. And it's difficult to come up with a policy on housing affordability that doesn't hurt someone else. Um, and there are lots of them that I'm sure we'll talk about, I mean, over the course of the session. Um, but, I mean, so lending restrictions, as, as we just mentioned, are a, yeah. real problem, are a real problem in terms of making it difficult for young families to borrow. Rising interest rates would also take some of the heat out of the housing market, but that causes unemployment and lowers your inflation yeah. rate. So there are trade-offs on a lot of these policies. It's also the case that the big issue, as I'm sure we'll talk about, is one of zoning and supply. Mm. That is just very difficult to build housing, to supply housing in, a, in Australia's big cities at the moment. But that's mainly a state government responsibility, and there's not much that the federal government can do about that. We will get definitely get into the supply and the zoning issue because yep. it's a really interesting one. But before we do that, you know, Labor recently scrapped their negative gearing policy. And back when the last, before the last election, you know, I wrote a number of articles that I was incensed at the, the misuse of data around this. And a couple of the things that I read in, in one of your reports that I sort of hadn't considered when I was doing all my research Um which I thought was really interesting, but you you actually have said that it has at both negative gearing and also the capital gains tax concession, both of them have a very minimal impact on house prices. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. Um, it's one of the badly appreciated facts about the housing market that these tax concessions, and you can debate the pros and cons of it. I mean, it's contra it's controversial in principle. But in practice, yeah. it just, in, in practice, it just doesn't matter. So there mm. have been, I know, what is it, about half a dozen studies by researchers trying to figure out what the effect of these concessions is on affordability, and they all find that it's tiny, using a whole range of different approaches. So typical estimates are between 1% and 4% is the effect. Mm removing these concessions that's the effect it would have on house prices so you know that's what that would take us back to where we were in july or something i mean it's just a, it's a non-issue not even that far um mm. <laughs> it's it's interesting because I, I know at the time i was incensed by a particular couple of misuse of data and one was that um what what was being trotted out uh, is 80% of the people using negative gearing or claiming negative gearing actually had a taxable income of $80,000 or less. But what the uh, Labor were coming out and saying, oh, but only 18% of that cohort actually used negative gearing. And I just thought it was such an interesting 
twist to say, well, yeah, sure, only 18%. However, 80% of all the people using it happen to be in that cohort. So it's just mm. one of the examples. But I thought also what was interesting, one of the things that um, I hadn't thought about with the capital gains tax concession, and for anyone who is listening, hasn't sort of, you can go back and listen to all our rant, ranty episodes back in 2019 about this. Um, but the very fact that there is a 50% discount on capital gains on an investment property and it means that there's less of a disincentive to actually sell an investment property so like i think what your you position to say well we need supply into the market if the government was to remove that and make basically mean that you're going to pay tax on 100 percent of your gain and that means that inflation hasn't been taken into account because that's the reason that was put in in the first place right to sort of make it simple um you know that if you take that away then what is the incentive for anybody to sell their investment property? Pretty much none, because you can keep all of that tax liability that you have invested and actually benefit from it while it's invested. So I just thought that was a very interesting point that you raised. Yes. So the big shortage of, in the housing market is of housing services, is of people occupying the house, and whether one owner sells to another is not going to change that. I mean, they, yeah. they'd sell it and it might be an owner-occupier, it might be another investor. In any case, the occupancy rate will stay about the same. Got it. So that's it's an issue for turnover rather than ex excess demand or, or shortage. Ah, okay, which leads us into supply and then rezoning yeah. and, and creation of, of property, right? Yep, that's the big one. And, I mean, Pete, I mean, this, does it frustrate you, though, when... Um, you see, like, prior to the last election, you know, there's housing affordability is an issue, and then Scott Morrison comes out with a 5% deposit scheme, or it's a first-home buyer grant, or it's a home builder, etc. and it's all these sort of demand stimulation, um, you know, access to super, first-home saver scheme, um, you know, it's, uh, cutting land tax, sustained duty to land tax, you know, that's another thing to, dem you know, create more demand. Um when the big elephant in the room, and this is what this podcast is all around, it's all around the supply, right? It's all around we need to release more land in locations that people want to live, um, you know, not so much just greenfield estates um, 50, 60 k from the city. So how do, we, how do we sort of carefully, you know, change this over decades? Because it's not going to happen overnight, but where do we start and then how do we slowly, you know, create a better society and more equal so people can afford a home, you know, in areas that actually want to live? Yeah. So you've said a lot there, Chris, that we could talk about. Um, one thing I'd phrase differently to you is you talk that it's mainly about land release. Um, in the major cities, the land release, I think, as you said, is occurring you know, a two or three hour commute from the centre of the city. And that's not where people want to live. People want to live near the centre um, and for a whole range of reasons. And that's where the real shortage is. And when you're talking about um, housing in the inner suburbs, you're talking about infill. You're talking about replacing mm. low-density housing with high-density housing. And the big priority is that we need more big apartment buildings, in particular in the inner suburbs and near train stations. There's an obvious place to put a few more yeah. towers. So, that, so that's what... The, that's the ultimate objective. How we get there is part, a lot of it is just a matter of getting state governments to stop saying no and start saying yes. That there are lots of proposals before the planning boards at the moment for new development, and most and past experiences that most of them are going to be knocked back. Um, Does it, it come back to votes? Yeah, so a lot of the politicians think that their voters don't want um, high-density housing near them. And <laughs> Which is probably a fair assumption. <laughs> well, I'm not, no, I'm not sure it is. I mean, it, there's, okay. there is a very, there's very vocal opposition from some residents, but... There are a lot of indications that that opposition is not representative of community attitudes in general. And, 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 and you see that when, in fact, new um, apartments do go in, 
you often hear a lot of the residents saying, oh, actually, this isn't that bad. I really like Yeah. <laughs> I really like the new cafes and restaurants and shops that come with it, and I like the new bus service and all the amenities <laughs> that come with high-density housing are actually very attractive. And it's true yeah. that people want the amenities without the density that makes it feasible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of people realise that you can't have one without the other. And you, and, you and, actually... And, sorry, go on. So I was about to say, you actually wrote a report about yeah. high-rise development and the impact on neighbouring house prices, which we will inc include the link in the show notes. And, do, and do you want to give that me a quick summary for the listeners? Yeah, please. Okay. So the main objection you get to high-density development is that it would harm neighbourhood character or reduce the yeah. am amenity of living in the neighbourhood. And one way you can gauge that is by what happens to house prices nearby. So you put up an apartment building and does that make nearby houses sell for more or less? Now, if it was true that high-density development destroyed neighbourhood character, you would get a lot of people moving out, few people moving in, and prices of nearby houses would drop until it essentially compensates mm. for the change in amenity. And in that way, the market essentially puts a dollar value on the change in amenity. And what we find is that prices don't change much. That you, that you put in, uh, you can put in a new apartment tower like Chatswood in Sydney or Box Hill in Melbourne, mm. and the desirability of living nearby, as gauged by house prices, mm. is actually unaffected. And I wonder about that because I was reading that report, and you know, I looked at the f the five um, big developments that you've referred to in Sydney, and they've each got something quite unique about them. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if that. The very fact that you build a big high-rise or a couple of high-rises or thousands of apartments nearby, doesn't that exacerbate the scarcity of a house versus an apartment? And because in property, scarcity is one of the big things that actually drives desirability and the desirability then drives competition, therefore drives prices. So in a way, it it might in, increase the um, the the aspirational um quality of housing at house versus an apartment perhaps so there's a, there's that as well as as obviously the amenity that it brings the cafes and the transport and the just the general bars that it brings to the area yeah i mean that's possible but one of the things we notice is that prices don't change relative to nearby suburbs so mm. in the sydney examples sort of we look at house prices in willoughby and roseville and uh, and Artarman and other suburbs near chatswood and when the, when the big towers in Chatswood went up, which was, oh, what was that, five, six years or so ago now, the prices in, house prices in Chatswood stayed the same as they did in adjoining yeah. suburbs. So the adjoining mm. suburbs are effectively acting as a control with, uh, <laughs> with, with Chatswood being the treatment. And, and you can yeah. compare the effect of the apartments that way. So, so Peter, I mean, I guess it's, um, I mean, you're in Sydney, I guess, you you know, you see Pacific Highway, for example, you know, when you, you know, Chatswood, we're, we're talking about here, um, you know, and there's lots of other pockets where, um, I mean, I guess in a suburb, though, you could get greater amenity because more people means more reason to open a business, uh, higher chance of success, um, more investment from commercial, etc. And so that makes sense. And then those better facility amenities and bus services, etc. create a better place to live. But what about yep. the, the houses that are like a train station, the houses that are zero to 300 metres away from this high rise that have to look at the high rise um, and have to deal with the additional traffic and have to deal with maybe more renters and the suburbs changing from a community to a bit more diverse, like an inner city suburb. Um, but then you've got the houses, say, maybe 500 to a kilometre away back um, in the more leafy part. You know, do you think there's a bit of a difference there where... The houses a little bit back further in the community part, um, they actually benefit because they don't get, there's no negative towards this new development. It's only positive. But the stuff close to the new high rises, um, in Box Hill is a prime example. Um, I was sort of shocked when I, uh, my pa was in hospital there at Box Hill Hospital right a few years ago. And um, 
I was, uh, you know, in between breaks of him doing a lap to the community and you could literally see houses next to 30 stories, like, you know, yeah. and eight stories. Um, and it's just like, you just, it's something you'd probably, you know, you see those memes on um, the internet with, in China and things like that. And that's what was happening in Box Hill. <laughs> so do you think that there's this real, like around the high rise is going to be affected and stuff behind is um, not so much? Right. So, so that's possible. And it'd be great if someone wanted to test that directly. Um, mm. our, in our research, we essentially just had prices for a whole suburb. So we would compare mm. um, uh, Chatswood to Willoughby or Atarman and things like that. Um, so I can't directly talk about that from our research, but that is a question that a lot of American researchers have wondered about, and they've done research where they have looked exactly at your question, and they find the effects just aren't that important. The, yeah. So that there are effects within one or 200 metres of a new tower going up, but they're pretty small. It's a few percent on house yeah. prices. There's, there's a big um, development potentially going to go into Roselle one of these days. It's the old Balmain Leagues Club development. Yeah. And this has been had, had various iterations and lows and lows and lows of resistance. And... I know people that have lived or lived in some of the streets that are directly sort of in that sort of 200, 300-metre 300 um, range, right? And, you know, certainly they're on the southern side as well, so they're going to miss out on a lot of light and blah, 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 you know, all the normal, all the normal arguments. But um, I would su suggest that, you know, they've got a very good reason for protesting because they are going to be directly impacted where those further away, you know, may or may not protest because obviously for them it's... <laughs> It's, it's actually not in their backyard in quite the same way. Um, what I find fascinating, though, I mean, the planning restrictions limit the supply of new developments, and, and I think you've argued that and, and shown that to be that's pretty compelling, right? And obviously that in turn impacts affordability, but there has to be some controls. I mean, we've seen the sort of development that results from pro-development councils. I mean, very recently um, the Canterbury Council, <laughs> the old Canterbury Council has been the um, news uh, around, you know, some corruption that's gone on with some of the councillors and, and a lot of the developments gone on Canterbury Road, for instance, that, or New Canterbury Road, that for years I've been driving along there thinking, God, that's shonky, horrible. I saw, you know, just behind those buildings, there are some really nice buildings, some really well-designed um and you can see over time the buildings that are very well designed and, um, you know, thoughtfully put together and well constructed and different materials, et cetera, et cetera, versus the really shoddily, rapidly thrown up buildings. Um, the people that buy into those two different types of buildings are going to have very, very different different financial outcomes over time. And, and this, is, this is a bit of the affordability conversation I don't think is had enough it's like what that's all well and good to say so it's affordable for you to buy an apartment or something else but what about what next what about what happens to you if you buy something that loses value because that there's a lot of data around that a lot of um, uh, evidence around that happening mm. with a lot of these sorts of complexes and this sort of you know rush development and I, maybe this is beyond your remit but but <laughs> That's the problem. We're basically saying that the, the planning restrictions have caused the problem of affordability. However, they can become another problem or create a whole other problem, yeah. a, a knock-on effect down the, the track. It, it would be nice if we could legislate beauty. <laughs> but, <laughs> Quality but, as well. <laughs> but, 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 but if there was some law to pass to make sure that all buildings were nice to look at, that would mm. be great. Um, it's... The current planning restrictions make that really difficult because there's there's such a shortage of housing that the incentive of, of the developer and the builder is to cram every square metre that they can in there. And so if they were unconstrained, you might get a bit of trade-off that you'd get nicer looking buildings, a bit more security, um, more thinking about space, aesthetics, light and everything. The way it is at the moment is that the incentives are just to cram as much housing as you can as the law will let you in. And yeah. all of those other considerations get a very, very low priority. So they build right up to the limit of the setback, right up to the limit of the height 
the height limit. Um, if you just put a height limit on without, without a floor space requirement, they'll put in you know, really low ceilings. They'll make it unattractive because they can sell it. And, and, yep. there's, such a, and there's such an excess demand. <laughs> there will be certainly... There are, you know, we interviewed a, a developer that a couple of weeks back who, you know, you would argue would be on the side of well-designed and if they had more freedom within their, their uh, the development control plans, um, that they'd be able to create better in product. But there's always going to be those developers that go, yippee, the constraints have been ripped off, then I'm going to make it even bigger and, <laughs> and, and cram even more apartments in. And and I, I actually, I, and I'm, I don't know the answer to this, I'm not trying to be a smart-ass when I bring this up, but there is a table, a very interesting table, it's actually on page 11 of your Felinski submission, right? Yeah. And it compares Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Brisbane average unit prices and costs in 2018. Yep. And it shows the effect of planning controls um, and how that can, they contribute to the price of units. And basically yep. you've, what you're saying is that in Sydney, the, planning, the cost of planning controls added 40% uh, or 40% of the sale price was attributed to those planning controls. In Melbourne, it was 16% and in Brisbane, 2%. Now, there's another issue here that this really highlights, and it's counterintuitive because resales of Brisbane and Melbourne units have resulted in more losses to date than Sydney units. Could it be that the planning controls actually protect the people who buy into those units? In, in what way? Do you Pro protects their future value because if if more people who the more people who bought a brand new property sell at a loss, resell at a loss, their first yeah. resale of a property, and in the areas in which that's that's got more data showing that it's been at a higher rate is is, is Brisbane and Melbourne versus Sydney. I'm not saying Sydney won't go down this path. By the way, I'm just. I was just looking at these numbers and, and I thought this is really interesting because I've always had this question, why is it that Sydney hasn't had the same um, over overwhelming number of or proportion of resale properties at a loss at, as Melbourne and uh, Brisbane has experienced? And I've always wondered why the hell this is the case. And your yeah. that chart, this got me thinking. Yeah. I wondered right. whether potentially it's those restrictions that actually increase the, pro the purchase price in the first place actually do in fact somehow protect the, the the actual value over time. I think you're exactly right. And a lot of what's happening is if you have a planning regime that makes it difficult to build, then yeah. houses, and in particular land, is going to get scarcer and scarcer over time. And so mm. you'll get most capital appreciation in the areas where there's most demand for land, which is the inner suburbs. Whereas you go to a place where there's uh, no shortage at all, like, you know, like a country town, and you're not going to get any capital appreciation at all. The, mm. the prices will just reflect the price of the structure with, land, yeah. with the land cost being tiny, you know, essentially yep. agricultural value. And there's, no, and there's no appreciation in structures. All the appreciation comes in the land value. And in Sydney, yeah. it's, a bit, it's, a bit. it's more than two thirds of the value of the average house is in the, is the land. If you were to change construction costs or taxes or some of the other costs of supply, the demand is still going to be the same. So the price at which that fixed stock will right. sell will yep. still be the same. It, it, <laughs> it, what what will change is who gets the money. The developer's margin. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, <laughs> at, at more. In, in the short run, the developer's margin, but in the longer run, it's going to affect land prices. Mm. And so if you were to substantially increase construction costs, then land prices would fall. So you're basically saying that, that the planning controls isn't so much, even isn't to a degree... Uh, it's it's all about what you can build on these sites. So you're you're basically saying if you if you're limited by six stories, then you know you might they might be keeping the NIMBYs somewhat happy and sort of trying to walk that fine line between getting voted out basically and um and providing housing and helping it big the big picture affordability. But if you could put twelve stories on there, then that actual proportion per apartment of the planning um, 
or the impact of planning is going to diminish and yeah, I mean, then that's going to take up demand, which is basically then going to have an impact on reducing prices. Exactly. So, and you do it with one building, it's, it makes no difference at all. But if you were to do it throughout the city, so a substantial change in planning regulations, then yes, you would have a noticeable effect on supply. And as with any market, you supply more and the price will fall. Do you worry about that sort of short-term demand thing basically wiping out the additional stamp duty saving and then people that left paying a higher price but then also paying higher land tax? So it's a double loss for them, I guess. So there's a, a few things you said there. Um, I think the important point is that, yes, access to finance is a real barrier to home ownership for lots of in particular young families. And stamp duty just makes that worse. That insofar as we have a housing affordability problem, stamp duty exacerbates it a lot. I mean, it just comes at the wrong, t at a really inconvenient time. <laughs> um, and, and that's a la very large part of the rationale for replacing it with a land tax. So yeah, if we were to do this thing then depending on transitional details, we should see an increase in demand for housing. But the design of the implementation is difficult. You, want to, you don't want a system where people who have already just paid their stamp duty then also pay the annual land tax, double taxation. Mm. But nor do you want it so that people get out of both. And designing a transition where everyone just pays once is, is difficult. But mm. ho hopefully they're... Well, I mean, something like in Canberra, the way they're doing it there, where it's phased in, I think, over 10 years, seems like a reasonable compromise for that to avoid some of those problems. There's, there's also price caps, aren't there? They're saying that, you know, under... Was it... Is it 2 million or 3 million? I can't remember. Um, you know, over 3 million, you're still going to pay it or... You know, it's sort of then that becomes quite arbitrary too, because then you've got this real barrier in the market. It's going to bump up against that as a, as a price to really clear. So, um, you know, uh, that, and that, I guess that's all the design of it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, they're going to protect I, I, the coffers. I, I, I've not seen the details of how they're going to do that. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. So how, how can we reconcile the two-speed market of established versus new stock? Because um, when you're looking at sort of macro data, it's easy to, I guess, you know, not understand the nuances or not see the nuances. And so there's one of my favourite reports, anyone who's listened to this podcast before will <laughs> hear me bang on about it. It's called, it comes up uh, quarterly by CoreLogic. It's called the Pain and Gain Report. And it's a good example, and I've spoken to Eliza Owen, who's the author of that report, a uh, number of times about this, and the total unit data, it's all aggregate, right? So the total unit number of like, pro I mean, this is a good example because this is basically properties that are sold at a loss, right, in a, in a quarter. And that total number is dragged down by the poor resale results of new apartments. And so it actually makes all apartments look more affordable, but in reality, there's quite a big divide between the good stuff and the bad stuff. And so I guess, you know, when we're talking about this big affordability problem, the, the supply of new stock, will that necessarily have a knock-on effect to the established market? And, um, and this, is, this is, I don't, do we have any evidence that it will help <laughs> the rest of the market? Um, well, not direct evidence because a big increase in supply hasn't really been tried before, obviously. Um, but a lot of what we're doing is just uh, simple economics, that if you increase the supply of something, the price has to drop. And you notice that in lots of markets 
around the world that um, so for example you compare California and the United States with in the south sort of around Atlanta or, or Texas and when California restricts housing price goes way up when Texas builds a lot of housing prices fall and there are lots of examples like that that we see around the, that we see around the world so what what we're talking about you're right we don't have direct evidence that it works but there are it's mm. all we're assuming is that the laws of supply and demand apply to housing in the way that they apply to yeah in the way that they apply it elsewhere i'm just i for me i, I wonder whether they will um you know that the established because you can provide more and more new stuff new stock um and it potentially could mean houses you know as distinct from apartments could actually severely decouple you know in terms of total market um performance and values um so yeah like you say we haven't done it before so it's hard to know but it because it just seems to me and i'm not an economist nor am i a data scientist so therefore i could be easily shot out of the water we hear but from all the all mm. the um the interviews that we've had all the people we speak to and i keep asking this sort of same question it does appear that there's been very little analysis of that um and so it would be a really fascinating to understand mm. um because I do think that there's this, there is a, it, it, you know, it, it, it stands to reason, yes, make more housing and then, of course, prices will come down. But I don't think prices of everything will come down. And then you're creating a totally separate marketplace of mm. the newer stuff, you know, um, and how that behaves is anyone's guess. And if it's more affordable and there's no growth in it or people lose value or the properties lose value um, over time, why would anyone want to enter a property market where there's such a high risk of losing money at all? I mean, why not just stay renting? Mm. People, you mean why do people buy a centre or developers or builders or who no, are you talking about that? the ultimate consumer. So basically, because obviously this affordability equation is, is you know, people want to buy a home because they, they this aspiration, I want to own my own home. But if over time it gets demonstrated, and it look, it has been and it still hasn't diminished demand for certain types of property, by the way, off <laughs> brand new and off the plan. Yeah. So, you know, I could be, yeah, my argument could be, well, so what? People currently are incentivised and, you know, they buy governments, let's face it, to go and buy brand new and that sort of overrides that their critical thinking in terms of looking at, well, what happens if I want to go and sell this down the track? Who am I going to sell it to and what's the likelihood of me actually making any money? And so what is my real purpose of wanting to own a property? Is it just because I feel good, feel like I achieved something, the great Australian dream, or is it because I actually want to sort of build myself a financial future? If it's just because I want to tick that box, I bought a property, then fine, they've achieved it and then what? And if they actually want to build some financial future for themselves, so they've got Buckley's really because what they're buying is has got a lot of evidence to support the um, the contention that they may actually not have a much of a financial future if they do buy it. So I'm just wondering that with the ad, if there is more supply, if governments do so, right, that's enough. We've had enough. We're going to actually re release constraints. Let, let's just get to it. Ultimately, the real truth about this, the elephant in the room about the fact that you're buying a property but you you're got a high probability of losing money that's that's got to be publicized and it's got to be a massive deterrent for people wanting to buy these properties in the first place you're saying that the problem you're saying that the problem with increasing supply is that it's going to be too effective yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> we, <laughs> we, sh we should be so lucky <laughs> uh, it never happens yeah. is that what you're saying um, <laughs> yeah, no if we were to make small changes and it would be have huge changes yeah. in future prices fantastic but <laughs> I'm, I'm not that I'm not yeah. that optimistic because because it's going to be a gradual sort of transition over you know suburb and suburb and suburb and you know there's just so much excess demand in the system that um, especially we build better quality sort of uh, products at the end of it. Peter, you were working in the Federal Reserve for I think you mentioned 11 years and yep. you know one of the things that I feel like makes me a better advisor is I was working in the UK all through the, the GFC, and I know you're in the US at that time. Um, and you just, you, that perspective you get when you're in a different market. And I think you were obviously working at the most powerful institution, I would say, um, in the world over that decade. You know, you had the quantitative easing, you know, interest rates, um, everyone was looking at you to save the world. So what were some of the, the learnings, I think, 
I mean, there's probably plenty, but what are some of the key learnings that our listeners can sort of take from you to apply to the Australian market of just the power of, you know, um, government banks and, you know, lots of other things that you think they might find valuable? I'm not sure what you're asking, Chris. You're asking how to be an international central banker? (laughs) I'm just thinking, um, you know, like... You must be some things that I guess over there that you saw and some learnings where you thought, you know, I understand the market so much better now at a government level and the system that people on the ground don't really know. The average puncher in the street doesn't really understand how it all interconnects. And um, I just think at that time in the US, it was such a scary time and you guys sort of came in to, to save the world. How does that sort of... And that's starting to play out here, right? You're starting yeah. to see quantitative easing. We're starting to see... How powerful is that sort of reserve bank of, of countries? Well, um, the Federal Reserve, in my experiences there, don't have lessons for the average punter. Um, it, the big lessons are for other central banks. Um, and there's a lot that, for example, the Reserve Bank of Australia could learn from what the Fed does. And in particular, the Fed does a lot of formal research onto all the big questions. And there's no, there's not much less seat of the pants thinking at the Fed that they don't make any decision without having run a regression first. Um, and and the Reserve Bank in Australia just doesn't have the resources to do that. But still, relying on the research more and less reflex and less on reflex would I think improve the decision-making at the Reserve Bank. And what about this sort of global problem where if everyone's printing money, then you've got to print money. Like, if everyone's devaluing their currency, then you can't be the one saying, hang on a sec, we, we don't want to get involved in this party, and then you get higher exchange rates, and then you get all these problems with unemployment, etc. So are we all just going to keep on printing money um, to infinity, kind of what's happening in Japan, etc. for the last 20, 30 years? Like, is that sort of inevitable... Um, when you've got negative interest rates around the world, like are we? How do we go back onto some type of normal train that we thought was normal in the past? Yes, so that's not what we're expecting to happen. We're expecting the economy to recover fit relatively quickly, and as it does, the employment unemployment numbers will come down, and inflation will eventually start to increase, and. After that happens, then interest rates will start returning to normal. So we think this is just a temporary phenomenon. And and yeah. do you think three years is a reasonable time frame for that? Yeah, I think the Reserve Bank's forecasts for wages and inflation make a lot of sense. I mean, I know other people in the market think that things will pick up earlier, but I think there's a lot of sluggishness in particular in wages, and it will take a long time before they're at moderate to high, at the moderate to high levels that they need to be. I mean, especially if we do open up the borders, which, um, you know, it sounds like it's going to happen pretty soon, right? And, you know, if we want to play catch-up, I mean, what are we getting? Two, three, four hundred thousand more people moving here? I mean, Australia's maybe more desirable, maybe not so much in recent times around the world, but, you know, do you think that... The, the borders and migration is really going to be a ticket the government can't um, avoid sort of taking, I guess. And, um, you know, do you think migration is going to really pick up really strongly, much higher than what we've seen over the last couple of decades? That's a great question. And I'm not sure anyone really knows the answer to that. Um, but mm. you, I mean, I think people are expecting, well, education numbers to go back to where they were and tourism numbers to go back to where they were and they're two of the industries most affected by the international closures but yeah i mean you're guessing um or hoping or hoping i mean it could be much stronger it could be much weaker we won't find Mm. we won't really find out until the borders are opened (laughs) but i mean i guess we haven't really had a demand problem we've always had a uh, demand of people around the world wanting to move to Australia. I mean, we've probably got one of the highest levels of you need to qualify, tick all these boxes till you can move here. I mean, the argument is that the government's just, you know, increases the number from a couple hundred thousand to say 400,000 we can let in and we'll let more industries and more jobs. Um, 
And then this starts to slow down wage growth, right? If you increase supply of workers, um, that will create lo rates lower for longer, I guess. So, um, I mean, do you think that's something the government's going to want to do is encourage higher migration intake because of all the money they bring and all the demand for consumerism in, in, in Australia um, that higher migration brings? I, I think it makes sense for there to be some catch-up, whether it's a full one-for-one, one, I'm sceptical. I mean, so I think we'll have higher than normal immigration rates, but it won't get us back to the level that we would have been on had the virus not occurred. And, 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 that, so, and, and that relates to the housing. It yes. means there's a, there, there, there's a permanent level drop in the demand for housing mm. the, mm. relative to what we would have had otherwise. But that's relatively... Sorry, I mean, that's relatively small. Say, I mean, maybe 1%, maybe 2% drop in the population and hence in the demand for housing. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's small relative to the effect of interest rates, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. And this Falinski inquiry, um, I mean, it's getting a lot of publicity now and everyone's obviously putting their submissions in. Can you sort of enlighten our listeners a little bit about what it's trying to achieve and... Um, yeah, when we should really know some outcomes of that. Right. So, I, so I, I'll talk first about our submission to it because that's what I want to come out of it and what I'm really hoping will come out of it. And we've tried to be realistic and relevant. Whether other, whether the committee agrees with that judgment, we'll find out. Um, but as we were talking about earlier, the really big problem in the housing market is supply. And in particular, planning restrictions make it too difficult to build houses, in particular in our major cities. And that is resulting in excessive prices and excessive rents. We've got a shortage of housing. That's primarily a state government problem, and there isn't a lot that the federal government can do. So what Mr. Falinski and his colleagues can actually change is not completely clear. But they can be doing more to encourage good policy from the states. And so, in, for example, the federal government gives the states and local governments a lot of money for infrastructure, for roads and sewers and water and things like that. And, that, and, and we've argued that that should be tied to housing growth. So you give the areas, the localities where right. they're rapidly building housing, you give them a lot more infrastructure support than yeah. areas where not that are not building much, building much. Yeah, so Mossman's getting nothing, but um, <laughs> yeah, the, the outer suburbs are getting all the funding and um, bit by bit Mossman was like, hang on a sec, you're not um, taking care of the trees and the roads and um, we've got no facilities here, so hey, we better build something. Yeah, that, that, that's the way it should yeah. be. I mean, and you do see that as um, that local residents will complain about new housing. One of the reasons they often give is that the roads are too crowded, the and that public transport is too full. So a bit of help with things like that will remove some objections. <laughs> Makes sense. Have you got any property Dumbo for us, Peter, a story that we can all learn from, um, even um, if it's very serious? I, 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 you don't want to learn from this because it's slightly illegal, but um, <laughs> just an example of the kind of things that happen in housing booms. So as you mentioned before, I was living in the United States um, back in what was it, 2004, when their bubble was just getting going. Yeah. And I was part of that. We bought a house. And to do, and as, as you might understand, when you're buying a house, you need to take all your financial statements to what they call their a mortgage broker. And yeah. the mortgage broker was looking over my Australian superannuation balances, and you know, which were a big bit of my um, net wealth. And she looked at the superannuation savings and said, it doesn't say anywhere here that these are Australian dollars. <laughs> and so it got entered just exactly as it was on the, on the super savings <laughs> of dollars. And my net worth went up about 20%. And, um, oh, as, and as a result, we saved a quarter of a percentage point on our interest rate. Wow. Um, so it's just, no, so I'm not saying people should do that, but, it, but maybe the regulators want to worry about things like that. It's just an example of the kind of things 
that happened in a bubble. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. a dumbo on the part of the uh, the the regulators or the lender or whatever it was in terms of their um. I love it because, you know, you often hear about Americans that they don't sort of think that there's anywhere else out there, you know, (laughs) outside America. So it's like there's no such thing as an Australian dollar. (laughs) Dollars are always US dollars, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah. That's a classic. Uh, I mean, it's a really interesting one. I mean, UBS are pretty um, prolific in um, regularly releasing reports on uh, liar loans in Australia and, you know, 40% of all loans are lying, et cetera. Um, and, you know, overstating income or understating yeah. expenses or yeah. overinflating assets or, you know, not relying, um, letting people know about debts. And, you know, technology is sort of solving a lot of these. I mean, people can't mm. really overstate income to a certain extent. I mean, banks verify that. I mean, they can over underestimate uh, expenses. Um, and the Royal Commission really sort of highlighted that elephant in the room around um, what's actually people spending and whether the bank should use that. Um and so that one sort of got put to bed um, that the banks are just going to basically use their minimums or slightly around that. Um, I mean, debts, it's very hard to not t- tell people about debts now because the banks have all the open data with all the credit associations. So it's, um, I do think that, you know, technology is solving a lot of those issues where I do think it was much easier to lie about these things in the past. Well, it gets back to what we were talking about before about lending restrictions, that it's difficult to lie on the on a loan application when the borrower cares a lot about what you're saying and doesn't want to lend to someone who's an excessive risk. The problem with these lending restrictions is that both the borrower and the lender want the loan to go through Mm. and it's the prudential regulator that doesn't want it. And that's where you start to get the dishonesty where (laughs) where both sides of the transaction have an incentive in inflating some of the numbers. And, yeah, and and there's a lot of discretion with income. I mean, over what time period do you include the annual bonus? Yeah, do you include yeah. that month of overtime? Mm. Um, anyway, and if you start it's having a good regulators, point, Peter, if you start yeah, having we, we impose restrictions that, that lenders and borrowers don't want, then the quality of the applicant, the paperwork, is going to deteriorate. <laughs> Yeah, so when we, we package up deals for banks, right, and we say, look, we're presenting you this customer and we try to present that customer in the best light. But sometimes yes. and often, actually, we have to say there's something wrong with their situation that we think that you can get past because of these except, with exceptions on file. Um, and we have to sell it to the bank, right? And uh, new credit assessors at banks, don't under, they are so scared about their job. They're still on probation. And they are like risk adverse and they're just like, no, 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 not going through, not going through. But then the more commercial um, people at the bank, you know, who've been at the bank for some time, they sort of jump in and say, hang on a sec, this is in the bank's interest. We need to make this deal happen. We need to put this exception on file. We need to document this and we can get this other document to, to close that gap. And so I think it's a really good point because you're right, both parties do want that loan to go through. Um, and it's just about making sure that everyone's sort of protected here, you know, make it the, the consumer as well. Um, but you're right, interests are very yeah. aligned. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's a terrible problem with expense data, that spending data, that um, that's just so easy to make different assumptions, particularly about timing and whether something is in this box or that box, whether it's normal category, that when you have the authorities imposing restrictions on expenses, the, the data ceases to be meaningful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, you know, consumer behaviour starts to change money. We start spending cash, so it's not on the bank account. We open up another bank account. We spend a foreign credit card. Like, if, if consumers know that's going to be watched, then consumers behave, change their behaviour, and then all of a sudden it's kind of pointless anyway because mm. everyone's just getting around the rule. They're yep. coming up with a different solution. So um, it's very hard to sort of uh, track that sort of situation so thank you so much peter i really appreciate you coming on there's so much gold in there for listeners and uh, it's a very important conversation i think you're right uh, supply is really the main problem here um, and we need to release more not just keep increasing demand well thanks chris thanks veronica it was great to chat fascinating chat thank you so much peter okay if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in sydney's inner west eastern suburbs or north shore 
my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo. Woo!